It's time to accelerate. Hi, this is Andy. Welcome to another edition of Frontline Friday with my regular and very special guest, Bridget Gleason. Now, before we get to the show, Bridget and I have a favor to ask of you. Really appreciate it. If you took time right now to leave a review for this show on iTunes, and while you're there, click the button, subscribe to Accelerate, make sure you get Frontline Friday automatically each week. Also, we need to hear from you. More specifically, we need your sales questions. I mean, what can we answer for you? What challenges do you have that we can help you with? So go to accelerate.fm forward slash frontline and enter your question there. Each month, we're going to select one listener's question to be the question of the month. And the winner will receive a $50 Amazon gift card. So remember, go to accelerate.fm forward slash frontline to give us your question and maybe win 50 bucks. So Bridget, how are you today? Andy, Andy, Andy. Yes. I'm great. Great, no, great, great. No, no, no. You can't, you know, you can't say I know, great. Fantastic. I know. I try to change it up. I told you well, uh, a few uh, episodes ago, I said something about not wanting to get bored. I know. But and you seemed a bit of offense at that. So I'm trying to change it up. I'm trying to be less predictable. And one of my colleagues here, every morning when he and I get to the office, I'll ask him, Boaz, how are you today? And he'll pat his arm and he'll touch his head. And he said, you know what? I woke up this morning in one piece. I'm doing great. So I feel the same way. All right. Gosh. Be for. All right. Well, I was just concerned about the branding, right? Because, you know, people know you All as right. Captain Fantastic. And I just want to make sure. They that- can still call. They can, okay. Let's, uh, I'm doing, I'm doing fantastic. I'm always doing fantastic. Okay. So we find you in Boston today? You find me in Boston today. Cold Boston today. Cold Boston. We're getting, we're getting, we're getting into that season. Yeah. Where it's going to be cold for some period of time. Yeah. Long, long period of time. Yeah. A bunch of cold runs coming up early in the morning. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Starting tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, I like those cold runs. I know you do. Yeah. So, we have a guest today. Awesome. And joining us is, really, for her third appearance on Accelerate, her first appearance on Frontline Fridays, is Deb Calvert. And Deb is uh, CEO of People First Productivity Solutions and co-author of a new book, Stop Selling and Start Leading, How to Make Extraordinary Sales Happen. Deb, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I see we're doing everything in threes today. I'm back for the third time, and Bridget is great, 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 and you're Andy, 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 so yes. <laughs> I know. Everything's in threes, and there are three of us. And there's so three that's of us. the theme of three. Very nice. Okay. I'll try to work that in as we go through the conversation. Maybe I'll ask one question three times just to play along. So, uh, Deb, thanks for joining us. We're excited to talk about your new book. And because you and I have been talking about, you know, you've had this in the works for quite a long time. I think we probably even talked about it the last time you were on the the show, at least the research you were doing uh, in preparation for writing the book. So, tell us a little bit about uh, Stop Selling and Start Leading. Yeah, it has been in in the works for a long time. This has become a movement. It started with a hypothesis, and it then turned into research with buyers. Then that dovetailed into some research with sellers. And as as it all began coming together, it it, it just made more and more sense. But it's been going on for probably three years, and I I, I don't say that just because we're on threes. Um, uh, <laughs> and the book is three pages long. And it's, the, it's the threes. It's the threes. I, I do have two co-authors. So yeah, There's three, three of authors. you there? Wow. Uh-huh. 
Okay. So, so you know, tell us about the book. So what's, what's the, the thesis of the book and, and who's it really intended for? Yes. Well, this be, has become a behavioral blueprint for sellers, the sales behaviors that buyers respond to. And what's interesting is that these aren't sales behaviors, no surprise there, but what they are instead are behaviors that are more often associated with leadership. These are the things that make up exemplary leadership. And it uh, is borne out by 30 plus years of, of evidence, the work of Jim Cousis and Barry Posner, and the, they're known for the leadership challenge. Worldwide, many, many, many studies, those behaviors are the behaviors that make leaders the type of leaders that other people want to follow. And these behaviors, the very same ones, are coming through loud and clear from buyers as what they want to see in sellers. In other words, buyers want us to lead them. They want us to guide them to new places, and they want us to step up and, and take the role of, of truly leading them. They want to be inspired. They do. That's one of the families of behaviors. There are six very specific, discrete behaviors, but they do. They want to be inspired by a shared vision, their vision plus ours, and, and they've been involved in creating it. Yeah, so you, you said uh, that, you know, a overwhelming, so I think I'm quoting for the book, an overwhelming refrain from buyers in the study was, as one person said, quote, all sellers seem to be saying and doing the same things. Yeah, the same old negative stereotypical things far too often. But even when we're doing it well, we're not quite hitting the mark of what they want us to do. I'll give you a, a very classic example that emerged out of the study. We do needs analysis, needs assessment. We ask questions. And even when sellers are doing that fairly well, buyers are becoming a bit disenfranchised. They, they aren't finding that to be stimulating. They, they don't want a diagnostic needs assessment. Instead, they want an experience and what they'd really like to have is, is a dialogic needs assessment where there's some give and take and, and they are inspired by that conversation all by itself. And it becomes an ignition for them, a catalyst for them to want to keep moving forward with us. Got it. Deb, what are some elements? I, I agree with you 100%. We talk a lot about that, not in those words, but but wanting to make sure when we do a discovery call or like what you're talking about, sort of a needs assessment, that it doesn't feel like this diagnostic that you're clicking items off of a checklist. How do you encourage people to engage in something that is much more dialogue and that is inspiring, as you put it, inspires the uh, prospective buyer to move forward? It, it all starts with intent. My intention, if I'm going into a discovery call, it might be to get these questions answered that the sales trainer told me I needed to get answered so I could find that information that opens the door for me and I'm able to come back with a proposal. Those are all important, but more important here at this stage of our relationship building is that I'm really tuned in. I'm not just listening for that piece of information I can pounce on, but I'm listening. It's a true dialogue. I'm asking natural follow-up questions. I'm guided by my curiosity. I'm really actively, even empathetically listening to the buyer so that I, I notice little cues that are emotional, not just content-based. And I probe to understand the why, the drivers behind what's being said. I've got so much more to work with as a seller. But most important of all is that that's what 
creates a bond with the buyer and gets the buyer to, to buy in before we ever ask them to buy. So several words in there that are, are sort of you know, keywords that we hear quite a bit. And you know, it's sort of Always sort of the age-old question is, okay, well, how do how do we instill this in people? How do we train people? Yeah, you know, how do we train people to be curious? How do we train people to become empathetic or empathic, whatever your preferred use of of word mm-hmm. is? Because you know there are studies that have been published as I forget the organization at Oxford Research or somebody that does an annual study of of empathy of graduating seniors from college, and since 1979, I think they've been doing this, and the the empathy level of graduating seniors of college has decreased basically every year they've done the study. Yeah, you know, so we we tend to think it's you know maybe that's a millennial phenomenon. But it's not a millennial phenomenon. It's a boomer phenomenon, an X X Gen phenomenon, and a millennial phenomenon. So how do how do we how do we break these trends? How do we you know get people to fully understand the benefit of of you know the empathy and the curiosity and make it a habit? Yeah. So. There are three things. The first one is, hey, how about we, if these really are important, how about we look for these in the people that we're hiring? So these are their competencies. These are traits that can make a seller more effective. So whenever possible, given all other things being equal, let me pick the seller who tends to be a little bit more curious and who does show a little more empathy. That's an advantage. But you just said, but there aren't as many of them. So now what do I do? And and you answered that question too, but let me draw it out a little further. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to preempt. <laughs> no. I like it, Andy, that you just a- ask and answer your own questions. It's I very just, A show of one. Why do I need guests? <laughs> Bridget, we're both out of a job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, yeah, Andy's got it covered. Yep. Uh, but, but it's about um, showing people the importance. A- empathy comes naturally to some people and and not as naturally to other people, but it's like all leadership behaviors. There's a choice that you make. Leadership boils down to choices, and I can make a choice to focus and not let myself be as distracted. I can make a choice to ask questions if I don't really understand the emotion, but I see that there's an emotion. Let me ask a question that helps to to mine for what that is and, and to understand the importance and the impact of it. And those are teachable skills, but nobody will learn them if they don't first see the importance of them. So using research like this, helping people to receive coaching so they the mirror's held up and they see what happens when they do and when they don't demonstrate curiosity and empathy. Um, th- there are many things that, that can be done to help bridge the gap. Will it be perfect? Will everybody be you know, earning A-pluses on the reports on empathy and curiosity? Maybe not, but if they start where they are, and improve the frequency just a little bit of those behaviors, it, it does make a difference. Well, how do you get managers to this sort of start? You're talking about hiring people that have those, at least the beginnings of these competencies, have tendencies toward these competencies of empathy and curiosity and so on. Is, is And Bridget and I have talked about this numerous times on the show, is you know, the typical job description for a B2B salesperson is, you know, we need a hunter, a closer, and an aggressive extrovert, and never... Have you ever seen a job description that says, you know, we want a curious, empathetic problem solver <laughs> to, to be our salesperson? Well, that's because you're not looking at the ones that I write, but I do consult oh. with sales organizations. <laughs> okay, <laughs> S- send me some of those. I'd like to see those. Yeah, absolutely. Well, a competency model, I, you, we should know exactly what it is that makes sellers in our organization successful. And those 
competencies include the behaviors and the knowledge and the skills or characteristics that our top sellers exhibit. And then with any selection process, and it's not just me who does this work, the selection process should be looking for the sellers who are the closest match to that ideal. They have the most of those competencies. And then our training program supplements. We also train on those same competencies because they know these are the ones that will make people successful. And we coach around those. We do whatever we can to performance manage around the ones that that um, that fit the performance management standards, and which is not always characteristics, but some of the others certainly. Uh, and when there's a well-rounded competency model that drives all of those decisions and helps people to know exactly what it takes to be successful, that has then an implication for the sales culture. It, it, it makes you the employer of choice because. It's, it's obvious what it takes to be successful, and you retain your employees longer. There's all kinds of residual benefits when you have a true system. Bridget, any questions? No, I, I love what she's uh, talking about here. I think it's fantastic. I, I'm just thinking about in our own organization how that would be really helpful. Well, it, yeah, I think the hiring's really sort of at the, the key to it. So do you, use, do you recommend companies then use you know, off-the-shelf assessments or customized assessments to assess these basic competencies i mean one of the real disconnects i think that what you're seeing more in what i would consider sort of state of the art hiring is uh yeah more use of assessments uh leaving less to serve the gut instinct of the interviewers agreed so yes i do recommend using assessment tools they should be a factor not the only deciding factor and they should be used after the interview process for your finalist candidates they, the assessments shouldn't be off the shelf. They should be the kind that are customized to what's going on with your best sellers because competencies in every industry, every sales role, that they can be different. And then when you're in the interview, it should be a behavioral interviewing process. And what that means is that you're uh, operating from the assumption that a person's past behaviors are the best indicator of their future behaviors. So it's no more gut instinct. It's no more, hey, if you were a box of cereal, what kind of cereal would you be and why? Um, it's the, a behavioral interview asks for situations. Tell me about a time when you needed to uh, demonstrate a, a real understanding of people's feelings. So you get the situation and, and you drill it down. And, and now tell me what you did in that situation. I don't, I don't want to know what the team did. I'm not interested in the hypotheticals. What did you do in that actual situation? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then finally, what were the, what were the results? What were the outcomes of doing things that way to make sure people understand the cause and effect? Uh, and when you can, you have your competencies that you're interviewing for and you ask behavioral questions and then you verify that with an assessment tool, you have a much greater likelihood of getting the right people in the door. Interesting. You talk about doing assessments after the fact. Um, I was thinking the same thing. So uh, yeah, a lot of people use them for screening, which gets to be expensive. And it, then the the main reason I recommend against it, and I have an HR background, so you know, speaking from from that school too. Uh, first of all, you you don't want the test to override human judgment, but secondly, you don't want humans to put more stock in the test than it really deserves. We, we've got to keep it all in balance. Sure. Yeah, well, makes sense. That's a good point. Okay, yeah, I can I can sort of see that. So, what what about um, the interview process? Because I think a more recent, more state of the art interviewing is that hey, if you bring somebody in and they're going to talk to five people, 
yeah, these type of behavioral questions are great. Everybody has to ask the exact same questions. Yep. I, I think that's the best practice. And if you're going to have the, uh, someone interview with four people, let them have the same competency. So if the three of us, let's say we're the interviewing panel, I will always be asking the questions about the competency of of empathy. And, and you'll be always asking about curiosity, Bridget. And Andy, you'll always be asking about the one that's um, uh, not being reluctant to make cold calls. You're, you're the one asking those questions about uh, uh, being a hunter. And that way we, <laughs> yeah, we have I'm our not asking evaluation. That <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, we've got our evaluation criteria the same too. We're all still evaluating, but because I asked the question in the same way, and it's the same question, and it's always coming from me and I'm, I'm dialed into it, we're going to have a little bit more likelihood of candidates having the same experience and the same opportunity in that interview. Yeah, I was going a little different path with it. I was working with an organization, and, and what they're doing is every interviewer has, uh, it varied, but it's, you know three to five questions. Every interview to ask, interviewer asked the same three to five questions because then they could, even though the scoring was somewhat subjective, it it was at least they had a common field across all the interviewers when they came up with a score and that, you know, everyone was scored and put into a master scorecard with all the other factors, assessment yep. and references and so on. Yeah. I, that matrix and then makes the decision. This is the hardest part for sales managers is to let the score yes. be the determining factor. <laughs> right. And if it's not the determining factor, you know, get, get HR stat because. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, and there was, you may have seen that, you know, the, Yale professor of research that was published this last year that was saying that when they this interviewing wasn't for I think it was for a job or it might have been even for a professional school but interviewing candidates uh, that when they had a control group where they just looked at their GPA and didn't interview them and then they had a, another group where they had looked at their GPA and they had people interview them that the people <laughs> the group that was they just looked at the GPA and didn't interview them correlated a higher probability of success at that mm. that job than they did with the interviews because people's emotions were getting in the way of, you know, their gut instinct was kicking in and overriding, you know, the facts they may have had in front of them. Yeah, I mean, we're human. And we look for people who we think are the people who will be successful, typically the people who are like us if we've been successful and ascended into management. And as good as we might be, we have blind spots and we have uh, areas where we are living in the past because we were in sales yesterday and now we're in sales management today. There are better ways of doing things. I, I, and I just, I know if people were here live with us, I'd be getting the, the Rotten Tomatoes right about now. Um, but it's, um, it's true. We've got to get outside of that. We've got to get away from our own natural inclinations and bias. Gut instinct is just not, not as reliable as we think it is. Yeah, but proven time and time again. So, so a couple of things I want to get into while we have time is is from the book is is you have, you say that there's a need for B two B sellers to catch up with the consumer sales thinking, or the need for B two B sellers to catch up with consumer sales thinking is crystal clear. So, what is consumer sales thinking, and and what's what's the requirement for B two B sellers? Yeah, well, think about all the things that happen in B2C when, when you are going out and deciding where to shop, where to eat, what to do, you're looking for an experience. And it's why we'll, we'll spend more money 
to do more work. We'll, we'll go to a, a do-it-yourself workshop. We'll go to a, a restaurant where we're, we're making some of our own food, or at a minimum, we're making the choices, like going down the Chipotle burrito bar and directing someone about what we want on our burrito that day. <laughs> I, I prefer to stay healthy. I stay away from that one, but yeah, go ahead. Oh, you can I have feel badly for Chipotle. <laughs> such a bad rap. <laughs> yes, yes. But they, they're one of so many restaurants. They've, they've been quite successful despite right. the, the problems they've had. And the reason that, that these types of restaurants and businesses, Sephora Makeup, we could go on and on listing them, they're successful because they create an experience. And the consumer gets to be a participant in creating exactly what they want. It has their imprint on it. It's special and unique to them. Well, those very same consumers, when they go to their day job and they happen to be buyers, just because they enter the B2B space doesn't mean they've forgotten about the wonderful experience that they have, had the uh, what it felt like to buy. They're bringing that with them. And in B2B, we have to do the same thing. We have to create these experiences. We have to make it special and unique. And we've got to let them be participants in creating what they want. Yeah, and I mean, I'll just throw out a couple of the phrases you use. So one is the requirement to, and Bridget, interested in your comment on this, is so sellers, you're saying, are not trained or equipped or expected to, A, cause an overwhelming feeling of admiration or respect. Um, seems like a high bar. It's a very high bar. Fortunately, it's not a, a difficult one, given that not everyone is, not many of us are, are, are doing this. But, but yeah, you're referring to, uh, something that comes out of, of research about value creation, and that is that value for buyers is largely made up of this awesome connecting experience, which is emotional. Mm-hmm. And that awesome connecting experience, first of all, awesome, that's the high bar, and it's it's not just your everyday thing. Connecting, the nature of the experience is that we are connecting, you and I, in this moment in time, buyer and seller, something between us clicks. And that's how I get the green light as the seller to continue working with you. If I don't have that connection, if I don't do something special that differentiates me and creates value for you, we're done. Yeah, well, I think that's so. I what, have to lead. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what defines an experience, right? I mean, to me, an experience is the sum of events in a process. And yeah, the moments define the experience. The 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 awesome moments are the. Another phrase you use, you provide the unexpected that triggers a euphoric response. I'm not sure I've ever had a buyer experience euphoria when, when I've been selling to them, but... Um, well, you've heard of the term retail therapy. Sure. Retail therapy on the, the consumer side, that's a euphoric response. It's measured in the brain. It feels good to buy something that, that you've wanted or that you took a little delight in. In B2B, what triggers that euphoric response is something that exceeds your expectations. It's unexpected. Even It can be simple, though. Even a thought-provoking question that really makes you think and that causes you to realize something or to reflect on something, even that can, can be euphoric. And, and maybe you know, euphoric isn't um, the, you know, the clouds opened up and the sun beamed down, but it's in the brain, it's, it's similar Eureka. to that. Right. Yes. Yes. Well, I, I mean, it's interesting, Deb, I think some of it, I, I, I think that um, aspect of being surprised and something unexpected that creates delight, I think is, is one, one way. And I think about that with experiences that I've had, um, let's say 
I remember one time I was having, uh, this is several years ago when I still used uh, Microsoft products, but I was having a huge issue with my computer and I had a presentation coming up and it was early in the morning, I had kids at home and I called Microsoft support with very, very low expectations that I would even get through to somebody. It's this big company. And I had the most amazing experience. I remember it was, it was more than 10 years ago. And I remember this um, uh, support rep on the phone who told me from the very beginning, Miss Gleason, I just want you to know I'm going to solve your problem. It's going to be fine. Because I told him I have a presentation in two hours. My computer's not working. He said, Miss Gleason, it will be done. I'll have it up for you in two hours. And it turned out that I needed needed an updated version of of, um, some of the software. And he said, how close is a Fry's or a Best Buy? It's about 20 minutes. And he said, Miss Gleason, I will stay here on the phone. Go there, get it, and come back, and I will wait for you right here. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I and it was so unexpected. It was just an unexpected gift. You know, he could he could handle other chats and stuff at the same time, but it was really that notion. It was it was the unexpected. And he also kept repeating back to me what I had told him that of what was important to me. I had a presentation. My presentation was in two hours. My computer wasn't working. And he kept saying it back to me. He heard me. Mm-hmm. And so I think there are, and he would say it. He would say, I know your presentation is two hours. I will have it back, back and up and running for you, Miss Gleason. And he kept saying my name. And there, so there was these elements that I think you're talking about, Deb, um, the connection, the, the hearing of what I said, and then the way he, I don't think the guy took a lot of advanced selling classes or how to connect with people. I think he got just good basic training, though, on saying someone's name, understanding what their issue is, repeating that back. So going the back. I'll bet, Bridget, that he had some good natural tendencies toward being able to be uh, someone who shows empathy. So in terms of yeah. being a good hire. Yeah. Well, we seem, yeah. to be, so, we, we seem to be so torn in sales these days, and maybe business in general, is, is between you know, inside sales organizations that want you know, sort of activity metrics driven, that want to be sort of scripted, you know, <laughs> torn between that because it's perceived to be you know, higher productivity versus you know, optimizing the human element of the people in the sales, and that's perceived to be you know, take longer, blah, 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 blah. I mean, it seems like there's a, we've got this fight going on for the soul of sales, it feels like. Ooh, can I quote you on that? Yes, sure. it does feel that way. And at the very same time, it feels that way. It feels like buyers reject selling, sellers reject selling. Have you ever looked at, at business cards? There must be a million different titles all created just to avoid the word sales as if it's a dirty word. Oh, completely. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, but all we have to do is find out what is it that buyers want. I mean, we can have all the sales enablement in the world. We can have all the arguments we'd like to have about what is it that that sales should be all about, and what is it that it should be focusing on. The truth is, there there are many different ways to get to the same thing, and the same thing ought to be: what do our buyers want from us? And we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, after three years of research, 
that they want us to lead. They want us to do 30 simple things more frequently than we do them now. And you can do anything else you want out there and and, uh, in the way that you sell, the way that you choose to make the connection, phone, email, cold, referral, whatever else those debates might be about. But whenever you are doing any of those things, make sure that your role is as a leader and not as the the salesperson with the uh, the baggage that 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 implies. All right. Well, that that sounds like a, a great wrap up statement for the interview here. Deb, intentionally or not, perfect. Uh, good timing. So, tell people about the book. When's it going to come out? And or if it's, if it's out already, this is going to come out in January, so it may be out already. But also, how they can find out more about it and connect with you. Yeah. Okay. So the book comes out on March 5th. We're doing pre-sales right now. It's yeah, we got a nice long runway here, but the reason that the runway is so long, first of all, pre-sales are are awesome. They're going really, really well. There's huge demand for this. People have been hearing about the movement for quite some time now, and it just makes sense. Um, But the runway is long because we want people to be able to bring me in as a speaker, to be able to set this up in, in recruiting and kickoff events that they'll be having for organizations that want this to be something they, they give to their entire team or to sellers that they're looking to attract in their community, those folks ought to get in touch with me. We're going to make it easy for you to get this to your team and to get some bonus extended learning on top of it. All right. So how do but they March, get in touch with you? Yeah. So uh, I'm Deb Calvert, and you can find me on social media. My company is People First Productivity Solutions. So my handle and website are People First PS. And just, yeah, let's connect. Excellent. All right. Well, Deb, thank you very much. Great to talk to you again. And, you too. And uh, great success with the book. Yes, you and luck. I look forward to reading it, Deb. Thank you, Bridget. Appreciate both of you today and, and everything you're doing for the sales community. All right. And friends, thank you for joining us again today. We'll talk to you again next week. Take care, everybody. 